0: Hello, my name is Daniel Lev and this is Reenchantment, a podcast about finding wonder in a secular age. My faith lies in humanity, not the supernatural. And if you believe that spirituality is fundamentally about cultivating the human spirit, then this podcast is for you. It's been a little while. I've taken some time away from the podcast to rethink what I want this podcast to become. I'll say more about that in the next episode, but suffice to say, I'm returning to Reenchantment with new energy and new ideas. In this episode, I speak with Andy Norman about his new book, which revolves around the idea of thought viruses and how to develop immunity against them. It's a fascinating and timely metaphor to compare certain ideas to viruses. And according to some thinkers, Andy included, it's more than just a metaphor. Despite the access that we have today to information, unprecedented in human history, bad ideas seem to spread faster than ever. After working for years as a journalist, believe me when I say it is incredibly hard to be able to distinguish what is probably true from what is probably untrue. Andy's book is full of ways to help us tell the difference, or at least improve our chances of doing so. And now, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Andy Norman about thought viruses and how to fight them. Andy Norman, welcome to Reenchantment. Thank you, Daniel. Nice to be here. And uh, I'm hoping you can re enchant me. So. <laughs> Working on it. Working on it. So, Andy, you are a uh, philosophy teacher at Pittsburgh's Carnegie Mellon University. Is that right? I have been for a long while. I'm, I'm no longer teaching
1: there. I have a part time administrative role at Carnegie Mellon, which gives me more time
0: to write books like the one I hope will. Talk a little bit about yeah, absolutely. And just to, to give a little bit of background, you, you are a humanist, a free thinker. Uh, you know that you come from that that area of of thought.
1: That's right. I answer to both of those designations and a few more besides. What are, I'm curious, <laughs> what are some of the others, uh, so people get a sense of of, of the, your boss. well, I. I- I, I think I I qualify as an atheist the way that term is properly defined because I lack belief in God. Mm. I prefer humanist, but I even have reservations about that, given that I don't think human beings are the only critters that matter. Mm. So, so it's kind of hard to find a, an ideal label, mm-hmm. but and and I try to bear all my hold all of my identities loosely for reasons. Of what we can get into?
0: Yeah, no, I I, I sympathize with that. You know, I, I can say much the same about myself. It's you know, as soon as you start you know affiliating too too strongly with anyone, well, it's it's a slippery slope towards towards you know, kinds of dogmatic thinking and, and and rigidity that that I think uh, you talk about in your book. Exactly, and I'm guessing because our mutual friend Bob Farr
1: connected us that you also answer to humanist uh, at least to some degree.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely one of the designations that I feel comfortable with. But yeah, so let's let's talk a little bit about this new book that you uh, just published. It's called Mental Immunity: Infectious Ideas, Mind Parasites, and the Search for a Better Way to Think. And when did when did this uh, book hit the show? I had an image here for your, <laughs> Those who are watching us on YouTube. Yeah,
1: just a month ago now, almost exactly. So it's still still in the cradle, yeah. so to speak. Uh, it, it was a long, long gestation period. I, I worked my tail off on this for about... 20 years and I'm super proud of the way it came out.
0: Well, it's interesting. Stephen Pinker uh, wrote the introduction to the book and in it he he pointed out, you know, that it was going to press at a very interesting time when you have the first vaccines were kind of approved or coming out and also the election, the US election became clear that, that Biden was was the victor. Yes. And it's, you know, he he makes this parallel and also touches upon this 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 notion that you know there's a, there's a, a mystery that a lot of people have to grapple with right now that in the age uh, when there's so much access to tools of reasoning the internet and communication mm-hmm. there seems to be so much irrationality and unreason. Yes, that's right. So speak a little bit about uh, is this is this the reason you you started writing the book? Is this the impetus? Well, I, st- I started writing the book
1: before viral nonsense became a major headline, you know, it's kind of a, a daily story. Mm. Um, but I'm really speak to the to the challenge of of this moment in history. So the way I see it, v- viral nonsense has a, a, become kind of an existential threat to humanity in the internet age. And that really the only solution to the problem, apart from, say appointing a thought police to decide you know, who gets to post on the internet. Aside from that, I think the only solution is to strengthen our mind's immune systems so that we're less susceptible to disinformation, conspiracy thinking, divisive ideologies, mm-hmm. and other, uh, I call them mind parasites. So yeah. it turns out idea, bad ideas are in fact mindset parasites that we have failed to see as in to see in those terms mm-hmm. long time. yeah
0: and, and and so that concept I believe it, it, it comes from some of the, the thinkers of the the new atheist movement Richard Dawkins talking about memes and and Daniel mm-hmm. Dennett I believe also speaking about mm-hmm. the way in which kind of ideas propagate and and reinforce themselves and spread themselves much like genes do and there's been discussion yes. uh, about is 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 this how ideas work? Is this an appropriate comparison to genetics? There's there's a whole debate about that. But yeah, it, it, there's exactly that. there's there's this parallel, yeah. and and obviously you've taken it, it well, up.
1: And I th- it's it's a parallel, and at the very least, a strong analogy or a, mm-hmm. or a really good metaphor. Mm-hmm. But in the book, I argue that it goes beyond that. Mm-hmm. That this is language that we need to learn to start taking literally, and in fact, it's in the process of becoming literal. So, think about the way the term meme, which Dawkins coined back in 1976.
0: A fun, fun fact, most that, people don't know that, <laughs> that Dawkins
1: coined he, it. He coined it, and, and when people first started to use the term, they would use scare quotes around it because they weren't quite sure it, was, it merited literal treatment. Mm-hmm. But of course, since then, we've watched memes become a thing, a phenomenon that nobody can deny.
0: Exist so, and, and they're talking about not just bundled- not just memes, as in like the funny little you know co- comic images on. But but what exactly do people mean, or when when you say meme, what do you mean? Yeah, so Dawkins meant any behavior
1: that can be copied by imitation. Or any bundle of imitation, a bundle of information that can kind of spread from mind to mind, and and thereby spread through
0: a culture. So it could be like a, so a jingle it, to a song, or like the notion that God exists. You know, any big, big or, or small, or the notion that you know Donald Trump is our
1: Lord and Savior, right? The idea that the election was stolen, the idea that climate change is a hoax. Mm-hmm. All of these are not just memes, but destructive memes, false memes. They are mind parasites because they they require a host. I guess some of them are hosted on computers, but many others are hosted in people's minds. And they say, I think without scare quotes, that they infect minds mm. and that they uh, can leap from mind to mind and spread through populations in ways that can harm us all. Mm. So in other words, if you If you create a list of the characteristics something needs to satisfy in order to be rightly called a parasite, you'll find that the bad ideas, especially the infectious ones, check all of the boxes. And that's why leading scientists, some of the most forward-thinking thinkers out there, including Dawkins, Dennett, and a a young team from uh, Holland and and Belgium, Martin Boudry and Stephen Uh, these guys have actually shown that you need the concept of mind parasites to properly explain how witchcraft beliefs spread through early modern europe
0: Hmm, interesting
1: that without that concept of infectious ideas the rapid emergence and proliferation of witchcraft beliefs just you can't make sense of it in any other way yeah
0: yeah, and, and and it's interesting, you know, thinking about these memes as literal parasites, um, you know, with with kind of human brains as as hosts and and the like. It, it, it does this interesting thing of taking the imagination seriously, literally, that, that thoughts and thought forms are, are actual, you know, things. You know, there's oftentimes, or, or rather than things, there are patterns. They are real patterns that, that influence right. the world. Maybe that's a, a better way of phrasing it. Yeah. I, I, I like two aspects of what you, you just said, and I'd like to
1: amplify both of them. There are many phenomena that we now understand scientifically using the concept of information. So information doesn't have to be encoded in any particular physical medium. So take the idea that, I don't know, I think, therefore, I am. Mm -hmm. That's encoded right now in my brain because I just said it. And I've just encoded it also in, in sound waves emanating from my mouth and entering your ears. It's also spread across the internet in little ones and zeros. Mm-hmm. So that one and the same idea can be encoded in many different forms. And it's not any particular physical instantiation of, those, of that idea that matters. What matters is that there's a pattern that can be replicated and that can spread. And that's why scientists take talk of information seriously, because it's a really nice way to make sense of things like ideas and beliefs and memes and other things. They're basically information theoretic phenomena. Mm. The other thing you said that I think is really interesting is that when you start talking about memes or ideas as spreading despite the best interests of the people that host them, Mm -hmm. in a way you're starting to give them a degree of agency. They seem to have a mind of their own or at least Take on behaviors that defy the interests of their host. Now, I'm not claiming that you know the idea of that witches exist can plan out a strategy to hijack minds. I'm not claiming that that idea um, is conscious right. or that it deliberately manipulates. However, it's quite literally true to say that an idea like that can hijack a mind and compel it to spread it. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and so we see in bundles of information taking on a life of their own Mm -hmm. and in ways that seem to compromise our conceit that we're the movers and shake that we're in control of the relationship between ourselves and ideas.
0: Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. That's, that's, um, you know something that I come back to a lot—the the the sense of well, the illusion that that we are totally in control of our thoughts or our actions. So 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 often, you know, and there are these un, unknown variables. Whether it's our you know the social the, the error of, of the society that we're breathing, the kind of the mm-hmm. base assumptions, and and so oftentimes our own emotions as yes. as propelling our our actions and reactions and 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 even our logic, you know. And philosophers going way back
1: have said, you know, emotions can hijack your your higher reasoning functions. Mm-hmm. Right? We, we're all familiar with this, right? Uh, reason says no, have an apple for dessert, not a cookie. And but you reach out and you grab the cookie anyway because <laughs> your craving for sugar, or kind of sugar, overwhelms your better judgment. Right.
0: So you, you said something about these memes, these kind of self spreading parasitic memes, as you're t- calling them. How, how do they compel the host to spread them? Why, why are they self-perpetuating? and How do they do that? Well, I think some examples will help to illustrate the point. So think about
1: the way in which a salacious rumor manages to grab the attention and, and induce people to spread the rumor mm. or to gossip about it, right? So s- salacious rumors about who's sleeping with who are the kind of thing that that s- is so seductive that will often pass it on
0: without bothering to check its truth. Mm. And, and that comes from right. an old kind of societal kind of gossip among among small groups being a way of maybe enforcing social norms or, or ethics uh, or just understanding what is going on within. within. Uh, yeah, and the evolutionary science of this suggests that gossip played a really
1: important role in sort of create cementing sense of community and also ways to punish advantage takers. Mm-hmm. So, if a member of your tribe was refusing to do any of the work and also grabbing the largest share of, of all of you know tribal meals, you know you'd start talking smack about this person behind their back, and pretty soon their reputation would 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 decline, and maybe the tribe would force them out, mm-hmm. force the freeloader out. So, so uh, there's some very sophisticated evolutionary modeling of how this sort of phenomenon takes place. And it's pretty clear now that the
0: human inclination to gossip is rooted pretty deeply in our genes. Yeah. There's another idea that came to mind about, that, that feels even more explicit of the self-spreading mechanism is if you don't believe and love God, Christian God, then you look that, you know, there there is a, a quite a strong punishment for, for disbelief. And, and for not spreading this idea to others, you are you, are, you know, condemning your friends and your family and other people to, to this fiery fate if you do not spread it. So that example illustrates a couple of interesting things about
1: mind parasites. Number one, proselytizing, mm. spreading the word of God or whatever, is a prime example of, I, I think, an idea, seizing a mind and, and, in, and inspiring it to spread copies of that idea to other minds, right? Mm-hmm. Mean, evangel- evangelical uh, missionary work, right, is an example of, for me, a mind parasite that, it, that hijacks its host in order to spread copies of itself. That's the first thing I wanted to say. The other thing is that the idea that you'll go to hell if you don't believe in God, Dawkins Analyzed that as kind of a meme complex. So the idea that God exists and the idea that you'll be punished with eternity in hell if you don't believe in Him are two different ideas. Mm, yeah. they kind of gang up, and one of them increases the the m- memetic fitness of the other.
0: Right. That the, the hell idea, you know, came came after the idea of God in the kind of Christian conception, but it reinforced, you know, your why you want to believe in in, in this
1: God. Exactly. So it turns out that complexes of memes, you know, bundles of ideas can actually lodge in the mind and persist and resist attempts at rational revision. Mm. So one of the things we're learning is that our minds are really susceptible to ideologies, like like complex webs of beliefs that serve emotion emotional needs, especially sort of short-term emotional needs, but that actually subvert our long-term interests or that make it much
0: harder to get along with people who are infected with different ideologies. Which is what we have been seeing in the last year or even four years. And, and yeah, and, and, and it's, you know, right, these, these these complexes of ideas, whether it's conspiracy theories or or uh, religious kind of frameworks and worldviews, yeah, they do, they do seem to be fulfilling a certain... Certain sets of emotional needs—a need to yeah. understand the world, need to make sense of, let's say, the the unfairness, the seeming unfairness of the world, why things are tilted mm-hmm. against you, or or that things are going to be okay in the afterlife—to to kind of console oneself, and they do—they do, they right. do serve—they they serve these functions of, of assuaging us. They also mm-hmm. can serve separate us and, and cause us to go to war, to storm the capital, to, to do all sorts yeah. of, of things that are in the long run and in, in, in a global scale, not very helpful. <laughs>
1: to say the least, yeah. right? Yeah. So think about, so a, a standard feature of most conspiracy theories is that if you come up, actually, let me use a joke to illustrate the point. Perfect. So Fred the flat earther dies and goes to heaven. He's ushered into God's inner sanctum. And he says, God, I I have to know here at the end, is is the world flat or is it round? And God looks and says, I'm sorry, Fred, but the world is very, very round. And then Fred goes, this conspiracy goes higher than, right? (laughs) What conspiracy theories do is they allow you to interpret any disconfirming evidence as just further reinforcement of the idea that the conspiracy has spread. Mm further. Yeah. And that's one of the tricks that a conspiracy theory plays on a on a on an unwitting mind. It can actually kind of close you off to the kind of evidence or
0: reasons that might help you climb out of that rabbit hole. And and, and it's um, interesting because like this is this is something that also happens on a day-to-day like small scale. I mean, if if you believe you're right about something it, it, you know, and somebody challenges you on that, it could be like where you left the keys or like, you know, what, what the, what you, what you remember the weather is supposed to be like today. You know, it, it's, it's, you know, we, we have these dynamics of like, no, 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 I'm right. Like, I'm going to defend my idea. And you can see it on, on small levels and kind of in notions. Absolutely. Ways. And, and, you know, and we all,
1: there are times when, Every single one of us has times where our mental immune systems fail us. I'll give you an example. So I was raised in a family that practically worshipped Martin Luther King. Mm. And some years later, I learned that Martin Luther King was unfaithful to Coretta Scott King, his wife. Mm. And when I heard this, my first thought was, oh, that was a rumor generated by J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI in order to smear King. Mm. That fit in snugly with other things i knew about the fbi mm-hmm. and their relationship to king and it allowed to me to protect a belief that i cherished now it turns out that the information that king was unfaithful was true but my mind actually attacked this information as a threat rather than allow it in as something that with the potential to educate and 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 enrich my my understanding of the world so Minds generate doubts and questions and challenges in order to challenge threatening information. The doubts and the questions, those are the antibodies of the mind. Right. And, and, and your mind can produce too many of them or more or, or have them attack the wrong thing. And, and when you understand this, you can become a better critical thinker.
0: Yeah yeah, And, and I, I remember you know, speaking to Andrew Magnabosco about uh, street epistemology. I had him on the show uh, a few months back. Yeah. And, and he talks about how this this with our especially with our core beliefs. You know, and I'd imagine with with MLK, that was that was a core belief that he was a great man, and, and he was, and and so everything about him was great. And, and if that was attacked, that also wasn't just an attack on Martin Luther King; it was also an attack on on you and on your core set of identities.
1: Exactly. So once you come to cherish a set of beliefs and identify with them, then any information threatening that identity comes to be perceived as as a threat to you. Right. And it will and your mind's immune system will will very often f- flip into attack mode and go after the offending information even and it can mislead and it, it often happens that we're misled by this I I can think of cases where my own disdain for Donald Trump led me to leap to the conclusion that that he was wrong again, even when a more nuanced or more patient approach would have led me to a different conclusion. Mm. I became triggerable by disdainful memes about Donald Donald Trump, and that was preventing my, my mind's immune
0: system from functioning at peak capacity. Yeah. So we're yeah so so let's let's talk a little bit about you know practical ways in in which to to kind of strengthen a mental immune system and you know there's the book is 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 full of these so like those who who want an in-depth dive go pick up the book I'll, I'll provide it to, to where to buy it in the episode description but again the title is is mental immunity infectious ideas mind parasites and the search for a better way to think but yeah Andy if you could just say like one or two fast tips, you know, some tips that, that people could use in their, in their everyday life. Sure. So I've, I've already mentioned that doubts are the
1: antibodies of the mind. Learn to listen to them. Mm. They're often trying to tell, highlight something important. And a lot of times doubts are the things that highlight problematic features of ideas. And if you don't learn to listen to that little voice in the back of your head, you'll miss it. And, and a bad idea will pass for good and possibly infect your mind. Second don't take challenges from people on the other side of the political divide as threats think of them first and foremost as opportunities to learn that'll keep you your own mind from overreacting mm. third never use reasons as weapons when you when you use reasons to to win instead of to find out you're compromising your own mental immunity mm. So the world's best, wisest, most judicious thinkers reason collaboratively in order to find out and understand, and they carefully avoid reasoning in ways, defeat or bludgeon enemies, or to just erect walls or defenses
0: around their own worldview. That feels like an important one. Could you go into, do you have a particular example that you can give of that?
1: Yeah. Well,
0: perhaps elaborating in this way can
1: help. So- you know, I have conversations with a neighbor who's deeply conservative and much less skeptical of Donald Trump than I am. And when we get into conversations, I, I, I can feel my own anxiety. The, the, I, I the can, adrenaline, my the, the cortisol. Yeah. Yeah, my cortisol levels, right, right. The, inflammation, the, the mental inflammation starts building. And so I often have to calm myself down and just remind myself that I want to re- maintain my friendship with this guy. And what I try to do is use reasons to gently guide his attention to things that I think are relevant, rather than try to defeat his position. Mm. You know, if he'll come around or not, based on the considerations he pays attention to, the most I can do is use reasons to gently guide his attention to considerations I consider relevant. And if I want him to pay attention to the things I think are relevant, I need to pay attention to the things he thinks are relevant. And I need to let his reasons guide my attention to things that might force compel me to change my mind as well.
0: Yeah, that's that's such an important thing, you know. To to one be be open yourself to be changed, to to learn and and admit where maybe your own views are incomplete or even even. Yeah. You know that that also it builds a sense of trust on the other side of like oh this person isn't just here to to bludgeon me and and make war no like part of what I have said has gotten through to them right so that that builds that builds trust that builds you know mutual mutuality and then they're more likely to hear you and and in the book I tell the story about how when I when I first start
1: became a teacher when I first got a, a, a teaching professorship I thought I I started off teaching just by trying to dispense the wisdom I possessed. Mm. And the, and it, and I fell flat. I, it, I was just not as engaging as I thought I was, that students were bored and inattentive. And then I basically just changed my approach. And I just walked in to the room and said, all right, guys, what do you guys think? Here's a really interesting philosophical question. I got some ideas about it, but I want to know what you think. Mm-hmm. And, and then we just kind of tried to educate each other. We tried to listen and learn from each other. We created a little community of inquiry where we each treated each other with respect and allowed other people to guide our attention to considerations they thought were relevant. And something magical happened. I mean, it just became the most exciting intellectual time of my life. I started learning rapidly and my students started loving my classes Mm. and it rescued a career that was – Looking pretty shaky at that point.
0: Yeah, and and that that sounds like what you were talking about in terms of collaborative reasoning, right? It's it's a, a mutual, exactly. you know, we are on the same team trying to figure out the truth, rather than on two different sides, like you know, trying to get you know, vie over over opinions. And if I want you to hear my reasons, I got to be willing to listen and learn
1: from yours. Right, Re- reciprocity is important here. There's a kind of Religious apologetics that basically says, I'm going to hammer reasons into weapons for my faith, mm. and I'm going to go into, into dialogical combat with non-believers, and I'm going to defeat them, but I'm not going to let them change my mind because my faith is is un, unviolable. Mm. There's a there's a hypocrisy in that, right? Yeah. It's a willingness to... It's, it's not treating other people the way you would like to be treated. It violates the golden rule. Right,
0: right. Well, Andy, this, this this is you know kind of the kind of uh, mental vaccine that I think uh, we, we need and unfortunately there is not one one sh- one or two shots that you can take. It's, it's something that uh, needs to be worked on continuously and, it, and it's hard. it's very difficult because it requires both r- r- rational intelligence but also, but also emotional intelligence to be able to understand what what's coming up, what you're defending, why you're defending it, you know there's a lot that goes into this work.
1: I think that's right. I, I do argue in the book that that there is such a thing as a mind vaccine, and in the same way that a a body vac- a COVID vaccine can be an almost magical solution to the coronavirus epidemic. Can you inoculate all, all my listeners right now? I, I don't have a silver bullet <laughs> mind vaccine, no. but I will tell you its basic shape: the the Socrat- the famous Socratic method the approach to testing ideas with questions and seeing how they hold up, I think that's one of the most powerful mind inoculants ever invented. And if you teach yourself how to test ideas with questions in roughly the way that Socrates used to in ancient Greece, and that was so beautifully illustrated in Plato's dialogues, if you just practice that art of idea testing with friends, providing plenty of room for clarifying questions, your mental immunity will begin to skyrocket. Anybody can learn to do this. Anybody can start to strengthen their resistance to mind parasites. Take the, Start with the Socratic method and then enhance it in ways that I do in the final chapters of my book. And I think you end up with something we
0: can reasonably call a powerful mind vaccine. Well. Andy, thank you so much for coming on the show. If anybody uh, wants to strengthen their their mental immunity, go and pick up Andy's book. And yeah, thank you so much, Andy. Thank you, Daniel. It's been a pleasure. I love I love your questions. Thank you for listening to Reenchantment. If you want to buy a copy of Andy's book, Mental Immunity, you can go to the bookshop.org link in the episode description. of the proceeds will go to supporting the podcast as well as small bookstores around the country. And if you like this episode, please, please, please share it online or with a friend. It really, really helps the show to grow. Again, thank you for listening. I'll see you next time on Reenchantment.